When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Deep Conversations with Uli Bear on Big Ideas and Great Books. I'm really uh, pleased and excited today to welcome a very special distinguished guest, Paul Mendes Floor. So, Paul, first of all, thank you for joining me today on the Think About It podcast. You're more than welcome. <laughs> it's, really, um, it's really wonderful to speak to you. You're in Jerusalem. I'm in New York today. And I just want to tell our listeners for a moment... So you are a um, widely recognized and acclaimed scholar of modern Jewish history and thought. Uh, you t uh, taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and you are the Dorothy Grant McLear Professor of Modern Jewish History at the University of Chicago. And a couple books I thought I should mention to our listeners um, are the, uh, an important biography of Martin Buber called A Life of Faith and Descent, and I'm sure we will refer to that book. But you've also written books on Gustav Landauer, Anarchist and Jew. So we already hear the theme of a kind of tension in the titles of your books, a kind of interesting kind of tension. You've mm -hmm. written a book on German Jews, a dual identity, where you look at German Jews as a possible mirror of modernity. It's sharing two different and distinct identities. Then you've edited other books on dialogue as a transdisciplinary concept. Um, another book on Buber from mysticism to dialogue. And you're the editor of Martin Buber's collected works. And you've been the editor of his letters. And he wrote something like 50,000 letters, which are now in the National Archive in, in Israel. So you've immersed yourself in this tradition, the 20th century tradition of um, major Jewish thinkers. And um, I wanted to start out by actually noting something when I started writing to you recently about this small text, Buberhead on Nietzsche, I kept on saying Professor Mendes Floor, and it was very formal. And then you said, oh, we could just say, you could just say Paul. And in some ways I was very touched by that. And it touched, it goes to the heart of what I'm interested in speaking to you about, which is Buber's I am thou of what is a genuine conversation, which is what's his interest in the 1920s. Uh, Ein Vau appeared under the title in German, Ich and Du, in, well, well, in December 1922, was, the date is 1923. He was already close to 48 years old at the time. And I, to understand the book, contextualized Buber's biographically as also um, in terms of, uh, uh, of the German discourse, or, and more or less, better said, the West European discourse, as undoubtedly you're aware of it, um, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, um, a book that was very seminal in this discussion was published under the title Gemeinschaft und Gesellschaft by a, what we would call today a sociologist, although the term yet had been coined at that time, a man named Ferdinand Toynis. And it suggested that as we marched into urban civilization, we've lost something very um, fundamental, and that is the, um, human relationships that were bonded by mutual uh, care and understanding, solidarity, uh, traditional communities, which were small and grounded in some sense of fundamental sense of, uh, of community, community in a sense of a shared concerns, shared uh, sense of destiny. Relationships became flawed, um, flawed in the sense that they <coughs> were fragmented, um, guided by an ethos of personal regret, uh, and achievement. Um, one that necessarily have a relationship to one and one's neighbor. Um, and that established a malaise sense that something's lost in modernity. Uh, and modernity is focused in urban civilization. 
There was many attempts to recreate within the urban context some sense of community, particularly through nationalism. And that came to a head during the First World War. Um, the Kriegsalemus, the experience of the war, seemed to be a bonding uh, of uh, that is lost and perhaps even return with the march into modernity, bourgeois modernity to be more precise, and uh, and overcoming the malaise of of the, of, of the loss of Gemeinschaft, and indeed often referred to the, the, the war experience, which was not only the soldiers but the, the but but the uh, uh, the society at large as they uh, gathered under the banner of, of German, of Polish, and whatever. <laughs> Often on this saying that God is on their side, and God had, <laughs> had was had multiple personalities because he, he, he the contending communities claimed that God was on their side, but um, and Buber himself, like many of his generation, shared in this sense of national identity, both as um, uh, he was actually in Austria, but still he, he was living in Germany, and Austria and Germany were allied. Uh, this sense of, of, uh, of a Kriegsalebness, a sense of community more by warfare, um, and also within Zionism, the Jewish community. Again, now we know what we were looking for, some sense of community. Um, and as the war progressed, Buber was brought to, by particularly his friend Gustav Landau, whom you mentioned before, they realized war is just not a, a, a fantasy. <laughs> it's just not an experience. Uh, people die. People are killed, lacerated, orphaned, um, widowed. Um, and slowly Buber began to reflect on how do we really recreate what was lost in the, as we entered the modern world. Um, and I think that's the, the background of dialogue and the dialogical relationships of which he speaks in I and Thou, my judgment, is is a way of restoring the grammar of relationships that have been lost, um, but not through uh, um, illusionary uh, notions of community, such as nationalism. And that is a message he also brought to, to the Jewish community. But Ayn Vau addresses not just the Jewish community, but all of man, all of human beings. In fact, there are only three Jews mentioned in Ayn Vau, and they're Christians, Paul, Jesus, Paul, and Peter. <laughs> No rabbi whatsoever. <laughs> but let me say something about the book. I know how we, it seeks to recreate a, a, some sense of uh, what we might call Gemeinschaft-like relationships. Uh, philosophically, the background is uh, Immanuel Kant. And perhaps you recall, Immanuel Kant said that only type of knowledge that we really can uh, affirm as uh, as knowledge is what we gather through our five senses. Um, and uh, going beyond empiricism, but gathering information in your five senses, we have a mental capacity to organize um, our five, uh, our, our sense data in a particular way, particularly through categories of time and space and causality. That's what we talk about when we speak of in science. Uh, and beyond that, we really, according to Kant, we really can't speak uh, in any authoritative way. <clears throat> So what Buber calls in the Vayanvel, we have two ways of entering the world. One way is for what he calls I-it. And the I-it is, it is the world that Kant speaks of. Uh, and if you read carefully the way he develops that, he speaks about I and it, puts organizes our world according to time and space. Uh, there's a past, and there's a present, and there's causality. But then he asks the question, is that really what we, uh, what it's really all about in our relationships? And then he introduces the term I thou. Let me say something about I thou. It's lost in translation. Uh, as you know, as a Germanist, uh, uh, do the, the Germans have two words uh, for personal pronoun. Z, which is very inform informal, and do, which is reserved for the relationships between a parent and a child, between the closest of friends. Uh, and of course, lovers, if you wish to put them in that category. But give you an example how strict the distinction is. Buber was very close to a philosopher named Franz Rosenzweig. They worked together, collaborated um, for over seven years on various projects, including the translation of the Hebrew Bible into German, a new type of uh, trans uh, translation. They were engaged in 
a project of renewal of Jewish education and, and literacy to a community that was had lost its roots in, in, in Jewish knowledge. They were what we would call uh, the best of friends. I spent some time in Chicago and of course there you have instantaneous friendship. <laughs> but they remained for eight years per Z, per Z, this formal. And one day after eight years, Rosenzweig in a poem inadvertently, inadvertently refers to Buber, the more intimate word, do. And then he apologizes, oh, I didn't mean it. After eight years of friendship. And Buber said, no, this is crucial. Now we are ready. Eight years that we can really, and the Germans even have a verb for it, Dutzen, we can address one of Purdue. And then Rosenzweig replies in a poem, uh, we are now ready indeed, we'll address one another Purdue. But in my heart, I will continue to say Z. Really? Now, <laughs> now, what I understand by that is, and I'll explain that, is to reach a, a type of relationship of do, when we address one another in this, in this, this manner, is to create, a, is to achieve a level of neutral trust. And here I can give you an example of, uh, who's, who also a psychiatrist and is existentialist, Man named Carl Jaspers, who perhaps know he was a psychiatrist, but also a founder of what we call modern existentialism. Yes, so uh, very, very important in American because he's the teacher of Hannah Arendt. Who that's true, and a friend, not only a close friend, a close friend. Uh, he said, "All of us, in order to protect ourselves as we engage in human relationships, are like a snail. We have a, a casing, a, a shell that protects us." And it's the way the titles, the, the way we dress. The way, you know, I have very French fancy, fancy Belgian glasses. <laughs> I let my hair grow long. <laughs> you know, all unconscious, but it's part of the way. I, right. know, it's, the American uh, sociologist Irving Goffman had a book called "The Presentation of Self in the Everyday World," and we all have present ourselves, in a, and sometimes we're more guarded than others, uh, other times. Um, and like a snail, a snail, excuse me, will exit the shell when there's no shadow of, of a threat. And so there is he, he, the shell or she, returns to uh, what the Germans call a panzer, which is also named for a tank. <laughs> Buber talks about his armor. Uh, but in the shell, we're not really fully ourselves in the, in engaged in the world. Um, and to exit that shell, we need the sense that we're not going to be hurt. That mm -hmm. we're, that our vulnerabilities, we all have vulnerabilities on one level or another, um, will be respected. And that's why it was such a long journey to achieve a relationship that Buber speaks of. Uh, the relationship though for Buber is very crucial terms in German. Beziehung, um, Beziehung has a dynamic. The German word is a scene, it's the pull, it's mutual. And so it's not only reaching out to the other uh, in a way of cultivating, nurturing, nurture, uh, uh, distrust. And uh, the word trust, I'll come back to, is crucial for the story. Um, but it's also a way of us being able to, to present ourselves to the other. So it's a mutual sense of being present to one another. And here's it, the German is crucial. Um, the German word for it, uh, an object, such as this pen that I'm holding, is a Gegenstand, something that's standing over against me. That's the world of it. Everything we see, and of course, Buber says when we relate to other human beings as it, by defining them as German, man, female, elderly, etc., all sorts of categories which we uh, characterize and, and able to recognize other people. Um, but it can be insidious because it can blunt the, the reality of that person. Person is black, and because he or or there's different class, or professor, or not a professor, or uh, it can be very hurtful. Um, although sometimes we <laughs> we seek to protect ourselves within the eight categories. Um, so the Gegenstand is something that stands over against us. But the word that Buber wants to talk about is the Gegenwart, which is translated in English as present. Somebody who waits over against you, waiting to be affirmed, waiting to be recognized, not as an it, not simply as a Jew, Muslim, Palestinian, bald-headed, not bald, but as perhaps you noted, whatever, bespeckled uh, of certain age, a certain social status. 
because we're not only obviously it's that so often can be very superficial and even hurtful when those terms are um, are laced with uh, prejudice bigotry mm-hmm. uh, every one of us is waiting to be reached out to uh, and, call, and that's called a presence uh, and here I think echoes with uh, in some sense poetically at least if not consciously uh, the verse in, uh, in Leviticus you should love your neighbor as you would like your neighbor to love you or you should reach out to the stranger because you know what it wants to be a stranger you should love the stranger as you would like the stranger to love you as already in the biblical uh, commandments in Leviticus, there's a sense of mutuality. We all want to be loved. Right. <laughs> uh, and here's a great difference between Buber and Levinas, but we'll leave that aside. But let me say one thing else about the, <laughs> the translation. In German, uh, one, if one speaks, addresses God. Uh, he also, even though God is referred to as the, the Lord of the universe, the King of the universe, uh, we refer to God Purdue. God, according to Buber, ontologically, this is philosophical, but but also the way we understand, uh, experience, uh, the other. God is also the what he calls the eternal vow. God is always there with as a source of trust, and therefore, when Buber uh, was consulted about the first English translation, was committed by a was actually was committed. I guess is the right word in English. It was performed. I guess with better better <laughs> by a. Uh, Presbyterian Scott, a very gifted uh, man named Reinhold uh, Reinhard Smith, Smith. Um, and they chose the word in translation for do, vow, in order to capture the religious moment. And for Buber, who uh, was in many ways an anarchist and had a very iconoclastic, or at least not typical, view of religion, our relationship to God is for our fellow human beings. When we say address the other human being, as a vow, we're also addressing God. And so Buber had many reservations about um, addressing God through prayers, particularly penitential prayer, a prayer that often obscures our attending a synagogue, a mosque or a synagogue, um, obscures the real challenge of, of serving God in the marketplace. That's a metaphor he takes from a, a, Hasidic, a religious community within Judaism called Hasidism. Uh, and that's a uh, a 17th century popular movement in Eastern Europe uh, addressing the poor. Uh, Judaism puts a great emphasis on study, but if, but if you have to go out and work, uh, you don't have the option to go study, there are no fellowships available. The vast majority of the poor members of a community cannot devote themselves fully to, to the sacrament of, of study. And study in Judaism is understood as a sacrament. Or you can worship God according to the founder of that movement in the marketplace. And it's not speaking of uh, uh, what's the American supermarkets, uh, best, best uh, Whole Foods, right? It's not a Whole Foods, but a marketplace <laughs> where people struggle over to get the best bananas or the best tomatoes. Uh, and how do you worship God in the marketplace? Or when you go into the woods to collect wood? Uh, and every aspect of life is a challenge in everyday life. Korean life is where we are begging to serve God. And that includes our fellow human beings in the most difficult situations, the most ordinary situations. And not just our neighbors in a, uh, in a residential sense or those who live in a fine, um, I don't know where you live, but, <laughs> but we do tend to live in residential, more or less with people's same background and interests or economic uh, status. Um, the German word is, it comes from Luther, actually. A person who is next to you at a given moment. Uh, and, it, and that person represents all of humanity. Um, so if we reach out to the next person who is, we're by chance, meet uh, in a variety of, of, of uh, moments of one's life, uh, and not necessarily fellow professors or fellow people, bourgeois, etc. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question about the, what you said about this idea of presence, which I think, in, in maybe in American English, we can capture the sense of this. What Buber wants to get to say when we know we're in the presence of another person. Sometimes we feel actually when someone walks into the room or someone stands behind us, we're aware of that. And he wants to reorient. It seems to me in the book when he says we are from the beginning 
always in relation. There is no such thing as the I, which then ex exposes itself or goes out into the world and encounters things. And the translation is complicated because I think that thou creates a bit of a distance for an English reader. And then the second word of this book is the human being is in the world. And in English, it becomes man immediately, which in some ways is almost too defined because I think where Buber wants to go, and I think why this book resonated so much is said, we are already in relation. And he says these word pairs, I, you, or I, thou, and I, it, they are relations. They're not two words put together. They cannot be taken apart. Right. So I'm interested in when he comes up with this idea that we are already in relation. There's no prior state where I'm the subject putting myself out into the world the way you said in Kant, and then we make sense of sensory data or in Descartes, the philosophical subject or the liberated Euro European subject after the enlightenment and all the French and various revolutions and what he lived through World War I, the Russian revolution, this idea of the political subject as autonomous. Right. So, and, and um, there's two, two, so there's this idea of the IU relation and the I-it relation. And right. I think a lot of people read this book for a long time. And I, and I, I was talking to friends of mine who said, oh, everybody read this book in the 60s. Everybody read this book in the 60s. And there's a second translation by Walter Kaufman in, I think, 72 or something like that. Right. And I think it opened up a possibility, what you said, to reorient ourselves to remember that we are already in relation. It was a kind of that had been forgotten in this project of modernity where everybody right. is out for himself or herself. Right, indeed. On a philosophical level, as Buber's in a school of thought that objects the Cartesian notion of I and, and the objects that we, um, that were, uh, I and thou is, of course, as Buber calls it, I and dialogue is between two subjects. Um, and that is fundamental to the human experience. He even says, Somewhere uh, in the book, I'm not, I can give you the page number, but there's an inborn Tao. Uh, inborn is that the child is already in relationship in the womb to uh, his or her mother. Uh, of course, the translation of man in German is mensch. You know, German has uh, uh, mensch is human being, and, and there's another word for the gender of man, but he's speaking of the human being, although he's translating English as man. Uh, so intersubjectivity for philosophies is is the, the the philosophical grid of Buber's thought that we live in uh, uh, with one uh, one subject one eye to the other eye so to speak, um, and we recognize the other eye as as not just you know, an it but as a, a fellow subject in the fullest sense. We uh, address that person as a vow, and that's what vow or you. Calvin had difficulty because he wanted to read it, Buber's book as humanistic, purely humanistic, and had difficulty with <laughs> with God in the story. <laughs> so when he comes to eternal value, he uses block letters for the U and to give it. Uh, uh, oh, actually, this is actually quite important. So just say something more about that because I wanted. There's two questions I had, and I read. I tried to read as much as I could about it, and the book has been received a little bit as as if Buber is dismissing the I-it experience in favor of the I-you. Although he says in the book, you cannot live without this it, but to live only with it is not being fully human. So we live always constantly in relation to all sorts of things and objects and things we just use, et cetera, et cetera. He said, that is not lesser existence. It's just the way we are in the world. And then the second part you just raised, Kaufman wanted this book to be kind of an existentialist book and ultimately downplays the presence of God in that book in a way. So, and sort of says, you can, you can use this book and read it as a kind of manual for how to be in the world and you don't have to live with God. And I think that is probably misses a fundamental dimension of Buber. Yeah. Philosophically, Buber wants to ground his notion of dialogue in what we call ontology, the mm -hmm. fullness of being. Um, and God is the ground, the concept of God is the ground of being. He says, if you recall, in the third part of uh, the book of, of Ian Vell, you don't have to say you believe in God. There are many people who declare they believe in God and not really related. It's not a question of, of, of belief in a sense of confessional uh, statements. Uh, it's the way you organize yourself, your, your, your engagement in the world, and particularly others, but also the world of nature. Uh, 
which constitutes for what would Buber call spirituality or religiosity. Philosophically speaking, it is um, the concept of God as a source of trust, and I'll come back to that in a moment, uh, as, the, as the ultimate ground of an authentic life, and allowing us to be authentic to ourselves, like to get out of that shell, and to yeah. reach out to the other and allow the other to withdraw from that shell. Um, I was just asked to write a little essay on a, a project on phenomenology of love, uh, organized by two very gifted uh, Romanian scholars. So they asked me, of course, to contribute an essay on Buber's phenomenology of love. Uh, and he does speak about love, but love not in the, in the Kierkegaardian sense of preferential love. I know, you know I'm married almost for more than 50 years now for the same woman. <laughs> and obviously we we uh, linked, if you wish, we, we connected because of some uh, ineffable notion of of of, uh, of what we call preferential love, of erotic love, of, uh, and even not for Buber, it's not even a question of ag agapeic love, where you're, you your sense that you you have an op uh, an obligation to be charitable to the other. It is for Buber uh, a way we encounter the other fully human beings, and he uses the German word. Well, the English can hear it in English. Love is responsibility for the other, not responsibility in the ethical sense but responding mm. to the other, the giving a response to the other, German Antwort, to the other and his or her um, ultimate self, which we now call the thou or the you, if you wish. Um, and that, uh, again, is anchored in the notion of trust. What is crucial here for Buber uh, is that the Hebrew word, a biblical word for, for belief is trust. It's mm. translated... Um, uh, as in German for Traum, uh, yeah. which means trust. God is a source of trust. And, and here it can be theological for a moment, but it gives a sense of Buber. Remember, Buber doesn't say it's a question of confessional belief. Um, and he actually wrote a book on that, two, what he calls two types of faith. Um, and two types of faith is belief that, if you have metaphysical, uh, theological um, commitments or convictions, if you wish, that's not what Buber has in mind. Uh, and the other form of, tr of faith for Buber is tr trust. And God created the world, and behold, it is good. And in fact, very good. But we experience it as awful, <laughs> painful, <laughs> on a personal level and a communal level. Now the world is in the midst of an epidemic. That doesn't suggest that the world is good. <laughs> uh, and a lot of hateful uh, rhetoric and actions that divide human beings on, a, on an intercommunal level, and the personal level, as well as, of course, politically. Mm -hmm. um, so how can we then bless the world as being good? And it's actually the project of Bobo's friend Franz Wolzenzweig as well. How do you accept the torments of life and the ultimate torment of life is that we are finite. Uh, we are, uh, and the ultimate signature of our finitude is death. Mm -hmm. Death. <laughs> that sounds very, sound very promising, especially when people die in a uh, or close to you, whom you love and care for. Well, I need not expound upon that, but uh, uh, so how do you affirm life with all its uh, fraught realities uh, and still say it's good? And here the, the notion that God is a source of trust, to move on, not to, to leap out. This allow me a, a more, more theological, because it's in the background, but on a, different, yeah. on a philosophical level, or more than a philosophical level of sensibility rather than confessional faith. There was in uh, in the early period, uh, well, the, more or less the centuries in, um, in which Christianity arose uh, and rabbinic Judaism also developed a series of movements and sensibilities called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is the Greek word for knowledge. You hear the word agnostic, suggested that the world we live in is is uh, with all its foibles and all is not where is not where our soul was destined to be. We have to just have to escape from this world. Uh, and Gnosticism provides arcane, secret knowledge of how to climb out. <laughs> uh, and it generally makes a distinction between body and uh, the flesh and the soul. Uh, and that had a great appeal. And I just, well, about two, three years ago, maybe more, I wrote an essay on neo-Gnostic attitudes in the, in the Weimar Republic in the wake of the First World War. Uh, a renewed interest in, in Gnosticism on many levels. Uh, and that had political implications that, um, of 
questioning any possibility of a human a humanistic liberal order it's not going to help mm -hmm. uh, uh, well spinning that too far we have Carl Schmitt and others you know uh, political theology which is really basically a form of Gnosticism uh, and Buber uh, was interesting he was he, he gathered with several uh, Christians Catholics and uh, and, and pro, um, uh, Catholics and Protestants German they call it Catholics and Christians to, uh, to establish a journal called Le Creatur, to affirm and Malta Benjamin others participated, uh, which is the last years of the Weimar Republic, this journal, we have to affirm despite everything that we are creatures and that we have to make, uh, we have to noble life somehow. That obviously has a political dimension. For Buber, going back to Ayn Vau, is we have to, with all the struggles of human relationships, um, is to ennoble or dignify our relationships for our own sake, not just to be nice and good. And <laughs> in that sense, Buber's eye of that was metaphysical and metapolitical. When you say it in the third part, when you just said, he says, you don't have to believe in God, but it's, he says, you said something right now, but there is a possibility for being in authentic relation or recognizing that we're already in relation to not under to sort of not forget that in a way so he says you don't need a particular conception of god or an avowal of faith to right. to have this this what he considers i think this book is both normative in a way this is how you should be but also just descriptive because he talks about how young children experience the world how other cultures experience the world it reads like a book freud wrote in the 20s so if he he takes all these this these experiences of human beings and so it's normative in the sense this should be our authentic relationship but it's also just descriptive saying this is the relationship you're already in right I, uh, hillary putnam wrote this really beautiful little essay on buber and says people are embarrassed by this book because no one wants to be told how to be with others he said we want description <laughs> we don't want normative description we don't want we don't want to be told how to be with others and he said it's an embarrassing book for philosophers the way, which is, I studied with Stanley Cavell and, and Hilary Putman, Putman says, the way Stanley Cavell's work was embarrassing to most philosophers because there's a kind of normative dimension. But so to go back to when, when he says, you don't have to believe in God, but God is really vital in this book. Without that awareness or trust, we would not know how to be in relations with others. Right. Uh, two comments. Uh, uh, I forgot the one, <laughs> but we just one I do remember. I will return in a moment. Uh, you know, uh, the term Buber uses uh, when he opens the, the book, there are two forms of of attitudes. Um, one is called Haltung, the, the term they use in German, Haltung, the way you hold yourself, the way you posture yourself uh, in, 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 uh, in, the, in the world, in the meeting relating to the world on all its levels, um, particularly, of course, for our fellow human beings. You could be on God, distant, and you hear that very strongly in a German, Z, keep your distance, and Abstand, you know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, there's a recent book that just, well, a few, 10 years ago, on the social codes of, of, uh, of Germany. Uh, and the wake of the first world, to maintain distance and not express your emotions, because we all, Terrified, we've gone through a tremendous torment. So we have a social code of not expressing emotions. I recall having a wonderful conversation with a, a neighbor of Freud's here, of course now in here Jerusalem. She, she said at one point, "What we we, we Germans lacked is zartlichkeit, tenderness." We've, we've, I think Americans would say we're uptight, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but we have a social code to keep distance. Uh, and that Buber is questioning that, because um, to keep distance means you, you're not only keeping distance from the other, but you're holding them back from you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, and a child, of course, relationships when they are, are with a parents, it is a healthy relationship, is is tenderness. <laughs> the tenderness is at the moment the child, well, in the womb, if you we have no way of knowing that, but he calls it. <laughs> but as soon as the child ent 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 enters the world. He, she is embraced, mm -hmm. that warmth, and that's why the child, the do is there. It's a halton. And I have, then, to, I have to ask you, as a, a bio, the biographer of Buber, 
you have yeah. to tell our listeners about because you do actually refer to this experience he had in early childhood, which structures his life in a way. And maybe you can tell the listeners what his experience was with his own parents and mother, because you bring it up in the biography and you're very cautious. I actually like the way you say, well, it's, it doesn't overdetermine everything he wrote, but it does play a significant role. Certainly. Um, he was dispositionally not dialogical. <laughs> he was <laughs> terrified yeah. of other human beings, as many of us are. <laughs> There's some of us like you, I guess you're very, you're, you're dialogically dispositionally. <laughs> yeah, no, I try, I try. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I listened to his lectures, their lectures on YouTube, which is amazing, this kind of beautiful but halting speech. Um, but you said Buber was not a person who just immersed himself in sort of social situations. Uh, and he also had a speech defect as a child due to a, a, a birth defect. Uh, so he spoke very deliberately. He also uh, was not a native German speaker. And that was a language he, uh, mm -hmm. he uh, forged his intellectual life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a, I just mentioned to a friend today that uh, in Jerusalem, he was part of the German-speaking community of prof exiled professors. And one of us, Gershom Sholom, who was a German, German Jew, uh, in an essay criticizing Buber, opens up with the less, <laughs> with the line, Buber was a Polish Jew. <laughs> and it has no, <laughs> as a way he said, he was really not one of us. <laughs> and he felt it. And moreover, uh, and significant moves, Buber's wife was not Jewish. Uh, she was from a Catholic background. And make things worse, if you wish, to put it that way, uh, putting worse in, in quotation marks, they had the children out of wedlock. Two children out of wedlock, and but they, uh, yeah. they ultimately married, but stayed married until I think she passed away in 1950. They had a very firm relationship. Uh, Almost and, 60 years or something like that, they stayed yeah, together. Yeah. She was a very important collaborator also in early in the... In the oh, throughout. Anything he published, she was a native German speaker, a, a very gifted writer. He showed her, yeah. and she would correct his <laughs> his German. Of course, he knew German very well, but yeah. uh, there was a concept, and as you perhaps know, what they call minority uh, German. Kafka spoke new German very, but he was conscious that he was speaking a language which is not his own. Derrida once said that he only has one language, and it's not his own. <laughs> it's right. So it's a sense that you're an outsider, of course. Uh, this is a, interesting that you're saying he sort of had the sense of being an outsider. He's in a world which um, the book you wrote on German Jews, a dual identity, where there are an enormous amount of incredibly gifted, important writers, poets, artists, etc., who are both inside German culture and also right. a little bit outside you. And ultimately, I also think the book is really important because you say, we have to look at this not just from the catastrophic endpoint of the Holocaust, but also beginning of Mendelssohn talking about enlightenment. Right. Sort of this. But when you say oh, Buber wasn't exactly, it wasn't natural to him to go up to people and say, I want to open up, I want to, like with Rosenzweig, it takes him eight years, and even then they're kind of keeping a distance. So why would someone like this, what do you think motivated him to try to propose? And then, Another book you wrote is A Land of Two Peoples, Buber on Arabs and Jews. So he actually put his philosophy immediately in the context also of politics. He didn't remove himself from the world at all throughout his career. Not at all, no, no, definitely. Uh, there's a, a very interesting word in German, which is not a fully uh, um, amenable to translation. It's called Geborgenheit, which means security, warmth. Uh, it's related etymologically to the word birth. Uh, and I think Buber uh, was searching, understood the, the urgency of Geborgenheit. He didn't have it. His mother left him and his father when he was three years old. She dashed off, never said goodbye to him. And that for a child of three, he just couldn't comprehend it. And he, to the, end, the very end of his life, when he's 86 years old, he still referred back to that moment. Um, and it's... It's not just the mother, but the Bogenheit that a, a, a wholesome family provides, particularly, of course, with the mother. And then he was sent off. The father couldn't handle him. He's three years old. So he went off to his father's uh, parents, who were Orthodox Jews. Uh, and they didn't have a 
they couldn't exp explain anything to him. They don't know how to deal with it. As is often the case. And I just said, well, you know, put, pray, <laughs> observe. <laughs> and as soon as he uh, left that world, he, he wrote, I, I just wrote a little essay on that today, um, senseless tradition, he called it, at the age of 20, the senseless tradition. It didn't, and it was a tradition that didn't provide him with, as it was experienced, not necessarily the, the tradition, but his experience as a child who was suddenly thrust into, into the care of his grandparents who perhaps didn't know what to do with him, how to handle him, because uh, he was a, a very uh, unhappy child. You know, he says in his autobiographical fr uh, fragments, the first experience he had of trust is when he would go to his father's stable. His father had a farm and he would pet the horse. Mm -hmm. The horse, because the horse responded. And that's mm -hmm. often why, you know, little pets are important. Booby's home household had nine cats. Cats. Wow. Not cats is a delicatessen, but cats. <laughs> that's totally a joke, but it didn't work out. <laughs> but thank you for laughing anyway. <laughs> but, Animals, but, pets are often more reliable than human beings. Yeah, yeah, come home. My wife is uh, has her problems. I have my trust. But when you come home, the cat is always there, ready to. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, well, when, when Jacques Derrida taught at NYU, he starts one of his later books on both on hospitality and animals. He says he had a little, a little cat that moved into his house. And he said, he stepped, this is a very funny anecdote. And Derrida said, I stepped out of the bathroom and the cat was looking at me and I was embarrassed. <laughs> because the cat gave me a sense of another presence and he said it's ridiculous the cat doesn't know whether i'm dressed or not dressed but he said my self-consciousness put me in relation to another being so he opens up this reflection and i always was quite moved and i thought that was very funny imagining derrida coming out of the bathroom with a little tiny it was a little kitten but i think what you think what boober is sort of saying we have these experiences of Geborgenheit, of feeling held in the world, but also he's in a world where this existential homelessness, as Lukas says, where it's a kind of fragmentation and there's no tradition that holds him entirely. Right, indeed. In fact, uh, a, a book that followed uh, Ayn Rao, which was a uh, the language was expressionistic and he wanted to, I'll come back to that in a moment, to evoke a sense of experience. Let me go actually say it now, and then I'll tell you about that. Um, towards the end of his life, he was quizzed by various philosophers. How would you, Herr Buber, Herr Professor Buber, characterize your philosophical legacy? Uh, and he said, I, I don't really want to, those categories are not going to really help us. All I wanted to do throughout my writing is to, to hold your hand, walk to a window, open the window and point out the window. It's something we all experience, all know. What it means, as you very well put it, to live in a, in a chaotic world, a cosmic world, a world only is bonded by tradition or small societal relationships. Uh, so he's talking about a fundamental human experience of being uh, uh, othered, to use a more common term. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so what it is, his legacy was to just basically take his reader metaphorically by the hand and say, I will be with you. Right. Not only, no, to point out the experience that we all to acknowledge. Okay. Yeah. And so he tried to, the way he wrote I Am Thou is to evoke that experience. Subsequent mm -hmm. uh, that, he wrote another book, uh, which is more uh, uh, expository in a, in a more classical sense, uh, which is now translated between man and man in English, but the German term is Schriesprache, and then eventually came the notion of dialogue, or the term dialogue. And of course, dialogue is not what you mean in, in literature. It's uh, it's really this interper interpersonal um, uh, engagement uh, recognition. Again, uh, rooted in a, and grounded, if you wish, in a particular way we posture ourselves to the world, Haltung. So it's not purely, as other words in German, for attitude. It's not a phenomenal attitude that you would find in, as expressed in Husserl and others. It's not a, an epistemological or cognitive uh, perspective, but the way you are embodied in the world, so to speak. Uh, 
Uh, I really now is losing track of what I want to say. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I want to say something else about. Uh, Avo Buber speaks is speak, say you saying thou, but you don't have to say thou necessarily in words. In the book I just referred to, he speaks about uh, uh, just meeting another person eye to eye, uh, or even in the passing in, in an elevator. Somehow, it's not a it's not a, a long engaged relationship, but simply a moment of mutual recognition. Uh, has nothing to do with words. And the story he tells often, uh, but it's an important story. He was a very famed writer before uh, uh, he, at the age of 40, 48, had this, what he referred to as a, uh, a voltafash, a turning of, uh, of his position. Um, 48 is, I'm, I'm almost 80, and it's still, but <laughs> 48 nonetheless is. <laughs> His big way <laughs> in adulthood. He already had more than 200 publications by the time he was 48 years old. But in a diff very different genre than we're familiar with when we speak of Buber as a philosophy of dialogue. Uh, and during the First World War, uh, 1916, he was, somebody came tapping at his door at six in the morning. And you just don't do that even in the United States, but certainly not with a German professor. <laughs> Unannounced at six in the morning. But fortunately, Bubu was already up because he was a vocal He worked very hard. Uh, and he saw this bedraggled soldier. And he said, I've been watching for days from the Austrian front in order to speak to, to, to you. Bubu was about six, six in the morning, but all right, come in. I, I, I can devote to you a half hour, which is very gracious. <laughs> man coming to your home at six in the morning, uninvited. Mm. And of course, you can imagine that Buber pulls out his pocket watch, <laughs> leaves on a table, somehow indicate that the time is, is, is essential, half yeah. hour is half hour. And reflecting on that occasion, he said, I was very cordial, man, asked questions, I duly answered the questions as best as I can. Uh, and after a half hour, I said, I'm sorry, I, had I had more time, I would have been more than glad to continue our conversation but we could say respectable certainly no circumstances such respectable response to his uninvited early morning guest the following day Buber learned that this guest this bedraggled soldier took his life and then Buber realized that what he failed was not to address the questions the man articulated but the questions inscribed in his forehead hmm. in his body language as I think you would say uh, and that means learning how to listen. Dialogue is not simply a way of carrying on a conversation, but learning how to listen. And, and listen, and listening appears as the, the superficial, what Buber would call to me, superficial. Uh, you know, he, he plays with the German word. If following was the term that Kant says that the world we gain for our five senses. But for the five senses, we just float over, following, which is a German word, over the the incidentals, the, the ordinary uh, uh, sense that are, uh, which we uh, we um, inflect with categories, Jew, young man, uninvited guests, guests, etc. Uh, uh, we just, the following is, you know, that's the ordinary world. We just glide over it, but it's superficial. Uh, and learning how to pierce the, those, that matrix of, of of usual recognition. I'll come back to another question you had asked earlier. Uh, is learning how to listen, not to hear. We hear, but not necessarily listen. Uh, and that's the great challenge. Regarding uh, the world, the possibility that Buber's romanticizing dialogue, was he was challenged by his friend Rosenzweig. Uh, but we do live in the world of it. We, we can't avoid going to the market to buy tomatoes. We can't avoid uh, uh, preparing our lessons or uh, or uh, uh, learning how to operate a computer or how to organize lives, our lives politically, etc. And so Buber calls it the sublime melancholy of returning to the world of it. We do must return to the world of it after we pierce the, the armor of the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I give you a very, since I'm an Israeli and I... Uh, and I see, I share some of Buba's political, not some, but he spent uh, Buba's political sensibilities. His, uh, our life here cannot be at the expense of our neighbors. Uh, and unfortunately, well, I, I don't <laughs> I can say it loud and clear, we're, we're, we're abusing the Palestinians daily. Uh, uh, 
And it's, of course, it's very easy to see them as anti-Semites opposing uh, the usual way we deal with the other uh, as adversaries. Uh, but the adversarial mode is, it maintains itself, perpetuates itself, and, and deepens itself. That's also true, of course, the Palestinians, these are us, they, have a lot of, they obviously see us as adversaries. <laughs> uh, so how do we break that down? I just, could go, well, a few months ago, I received, uh, I can't want to go into names, but a very major political figure uh, in the, uh, the presidential um, staff who was engaged in issues of well, I don't want to disclose who he is, because yeah, <laughs> but how do we <laughs> develop dialogue with our adversaries? This is a major figure in America, it's quite uh, as opposed to negotiating. Yeah, uh, never is how do uh, how do we pierce the army, uh, the armor of of his adversarial relations? Right. Uh, but going back to the Israeli situation, because it's so much, it's, it's more. Uh, immediate to my experiences. How do we, uh, under this very difficult situation, develop trust that we we learn that is the, that Spuber's concern, how this can be a, a land of two peoples, not just one people over of abusing the others by, the, well, I don't want to, you know, I, you, yeah, I'm sorry, you, you're familiar with the story. That's learning to listen, not just to hear of their complaints and they hear us and we re we rehearse each other's political lit lit litany. Um, but listening has an effective, uh, as you know, as a teacher, uh, your students come to your office hours. Uh, sometimes it's not just for questions about the material covered, but they have existential questions, uh, or uh, and it's not necessarily what is verbalized. Uh, so, so when yeah. you when you responded to this kind of immediate political question, what you're saying, this question is not an I-it relation only. This is not just a functional, how do we see their demands and how do we meet our and compromise and negotiate and use all of this. But you're saying something else has to be part of it as well, which is to really see somebody else and to really have what you call in one of your books, and unmediated listening without having all these professional, ideological, intellectual, emotional sort of preconceptions. So, so I think this is why the book was so important in the 60s to people and why people still return to it today. In America, we have the same situation as you know, that there's this whole idea of a breakdown of dialogue. You cannot talk to the other side. There's no way to speak to these people who hold opposing views. So what's your... So, what, I just what, what, to, yeah, go ahead. I just want to flesh out the idea of a sublime melancholy. Yeah. We, after we've somehow come to a new consciousness, it, if you want to put it this way, the dialogue that Buba speaks of could take place in a minute. It just, uh, it's transformative in our consciousness, and that has the phenomenological aspects. That I don't want to burden the discussion with uh, um, technical terms, but uh, but you do return to the world of it. We live in the world of it. Uh, but somehow changing the sensibility of the other, or going back to the language of Avis, no longer as an adversary, but a challenge to how we can learn to live together and respect one another in terms of our own histories, our own agonies, our own stories. And, um, uh, so the book, crucial in the book, I and Vow is the end. It's not, I become you, <laughs> but I remain myself. And in fact, by relating to you, I, I, I ennoble myself. I allow myself to emerge from my shell as you emerge from your shell. And that's what trust is mutual. Uh, but this trust, what would you say to somebody to say, well, are you expecting me to trust the other, but I cannot rely on the fact that this person will then also reciprocate. They will just betray me or cheat me or... <laughs> Right. So Buba calls that mismeetings, and more, more often we have mismeetings. You open up to the other, and mm -hmm. then rebuffed. Or, uh, and the question of, of course, how you sustain a relationship. Mm -hmm. Franz Rosenzweig uh, shared many of these concerns with Buber, and he said, marriage is not in the marriage contract. It has to be renewed every day. And we have a Hebrew expression that creation is renewed every day. All relationships are renewed and renegotiated. I'm not the same person, uh, same experiences, the same torments, the same, uh, I just read this beautiful book, poetry I told you. Uh, I'm renewed every day. <laughs> and so is my wife. My children. Oh, this, is, this is quite a, 
it's actually it's it's quite radical to think you renew your relationships every day because that means also you risk the relationship every day because there has to be then two people involved so i remember i'd said i studied with stanley cavell who wrote these really amazing books on hollywood um, romances um these kind of right. comedies where two people are already married and then they have a possibility to leave the marriage no children lots of money no problems and he said this is when it gets interesting because then you have to make a moral commitment to the other right it could be it could not happen so what you're saying the renewal every day means also you're risking yourself every day because definitely echoing buber's uh so to speak intellectual uh curriculum was nietzsche he read nietzsche as a young man as everyone in his generation Uh, even as a boy of 16 he sought to translate uh nietzsche's uh let's speak zaratustin to polish which is the language of his education not German. Well, and I'm I'm happy to say because with your help and facilitation and mediation with the Buber Estate, my little translation of Buber's essay on Nietzsche is going to come out in the New York Review of Books, which is a very young essay when Buber is so excited about Nietzsche, who is a philosopher who says you have to continually risk yourself in this act of creation. Precisely. That's where I so you got the point. Yes. Yeah, uh, but you you kind of emphasize that actually in our correspondence about this yeah. short essay on Nietzsche that that philosophy is creative, not just critical. It doesn't just What's diagnose that? the world, right. but it recreates it. Yeah. Every day is a risk. <laughs> All relationships yeah. are a risk. Right. <laughs> Even this conversation is a risk if I come across clearly, coherently. <laughs> I think, Paul, this is actually, I was thinking about this when you were speaking earlier, how do you really listen? And when, before you even brought it up, when my students come to my office hours, I think my obligation is to really see them. And it's not to explain this or that that was unclear in class, but if I recognize and see them, it is such... A, an important thing for me to even say who are my students and for them to be seen by me. It's so, not easy. Not easy, especially if you know you don't like a student. <laughs> I think, uh, or uh, one of the challenges of being a teacher is occasionally your the students are much more intelligent than you. <laughs> Many times, it happens a lot. <laughs> so there's a risk. <laughs> but actually, I think that's actually nice. You're saying, I mean, also the fact that Buber. What you said, he wrote so much. It is, a, it is so daunting. I mean, and the, the, you know, the, the collected works. And I think there's also that openness that he continually would revisit things or test them out or write essays or respond to political concerns. He has, he responds to things constantly, it seems. He's not removed from the world in some ivory tower no. or seminary. No, certainly, yeah. That was, I think that was a, an ethical commitment as well, uh, to to be engaged in the world, to listen. Uh, and he, of course, he was very multicultural. He not only was, of course, it was part of the, so to speak, the the matrix, cultural matrix of Austrian-Hungarian Empire that you knew many languages. <laughs> I when somebody told me a joke because in a diary of father, uh, and. <laughs> Some man introduces his son as knowing all these languages in, in Vienna. And the man says, and respond, your son knows all these languages? Does he want to be a waiter? Because <laughs> <laughs> he has a new person to speak. <laughs> That's fantastic, right? <laughs> I love yeah, that. You know, to be a, uh, the German word is a Kellner, a waiter in, in Austrian Hungary, you had to know all these languages. But that was Boomer too. He, he, uh, he entered the cognitive universe of many different cultures uh, and edited them. He knew, for instance, Italian. They loved Italian. And it just, he and his wife spent a year in Florence and they decided to return. When they returned to Germany, they will be speaking Italian at an evening meal. They hired a maid who spoke from the area of Italy, the purest German, a uh, purest Italian, never allowed her to learn, learn German, but she, <laughs> so the, the children, all children, they knew, knew it, spoke Italian at home. But say something about, this is, I think, interesting, um, about his relation to Hebrew, because I think there was, in your biography, you say there was an uncertainty that he said he never quite mastered Hebrew, and he kept on publishing in German most of his, his, his life, right? Yeah, he knew Hebrew, but spoken modern Hebrew uh, was 
had he had acquired that. And, and uh, he was already in his 60s when he came to Palestine to teach at the Hebrew University. Um, and he did have experience speaking modern Hebrew. He knew <laughs> biblical Hebrew, uh, rabbinic Hebrew, but um, but to speak. So he had actually a tutor. Uh, really? <laughs> at the age of 60, he learned how to speak modern Hebrew. Uh, which is, of course, based on the tradition, but it's uh, nonetheless it's a, a different type of uh, exercise and a different book, different use of vocabulary, etc. Uh, so like, the joke was that uh, uh, told Boob, don't worry about speaking Hebrew because you're going to have to speak Hebrew in a more limited way, but then we'll finally have an opportunity to understand what you really want to say <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to convoluted German. <laughs> right. But it is remarkable he translates the Hebrew Bible into German, but then he said... I don't oh, he knew Hebrew very well, but right. not, not spoken modern Hebrew. Right, right. <laughs> um, when you when you think about um, I and Thou, which I mean, I I understand what Kaufman did because he worked with Buber's son, I think, who was the literary executor of the estate. But I do think the book suffers a little bit from that title alone. And I think for, because I read it now in English and I read it also in German. And in German, it's a poetic book. It's just sort of it's kind of you just read it. It has a lot of ideas. It doesn't. It's not a philosophical treatise that references all these other philosophers. Right. It sort of lives on its own. And I, when you think about that book today, um, where would you situate it? I actually, I was struck that, to be honest with you, I think it should be up there with civilization and its discontents, with maybe being in time, with so with the tractat, with the major works of European thought, but somehow it's sort of in a strange position. Right. Buber experimented with, uh, uh, there was a book that pre preceded that by 10 years, the Iandel called Daniel. Uh, likewise, he sought to have, uh, uh, the name Daniel is not referring to the biblical Daniel. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite an extraordinary moment. He got a, an honorary doctorate from the Sorbonne, and he, they mentioned it in the, uh, the document, a very elaborate document uh, in French and Latin. Uh, he's the author of this Jewish book on Daniel. It has nothing to do with it. Uh, it's really it was a response to Zarathustra. Daniel was also a, a, a denizen of the of the of the Iranian world. Uh, and very, it's very clear that he's what we call Zarathustra Stil in German, the, uh, the style of Zarathustra. Uh, which is on the border of what we call expressionism, evoking human experiences, etc. If you're familiar with that, and he tried to do that in, in Ayn's Zawa as a poetic, poetic philosophy, uh, in order to evoke a, a sense of a, what we all know or should know. Uh, behind it is a philosophical issue uh, that I, I believe, is also there. Um, Schopenhauer, uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, because. A contemporary of well, preceded Nietzsche, uh, a bit, uh, contemporary of Hegel, I should say. Uh, a man had a lot of sense of despair. He would he would uh, he would schedule his classes the same time that Hegel had his, and Hegel was very famous. And he was one. Hegel has three hundred students. I have two, <laughs> and he continued to do that. But but behind it was a sense of uh, human. Uh, Loneliness and he contributes it to the Kantian world. We've, uh, I'm certainly familiar with this. Is that a Kant told us the world is organized, taught us that they acknowledge that the world is organized according to sense data, which then we organize through our mental activities, time and space, which allows us to say, and when the space, this pen is not this, <laughs> I am not you, according to, uh, to Schopenhauer. The distance is one of isolation, and therefore he recommends that we. As you perhaps call, a turn to the Indian wisdom of Nirvana to sort of break off our relationships to this world. Uh, but towards the uh, through Nietzsche, we there was a revival of our interest in the uh, in Schopenhauer. You know, I'm certain you know it had registered in music and in art in the fondest in the end of the 19th and 20, early the turn into the 20th century. There was a revival of interest in, in Schopenhauer, again evoking this notion that the modern world that we're isolated from one another. Uh, how do we overcome? Buber's friend uh, Randall, you mentioned before, was a part of that discourse, and he said in German, said powerful German, Hetesh keine Augen, had I no eyes, I would not be able to be separated from you. 
yeah. I would not be torn into the web of isolation, the yeah. world of who we would call I, it, or Khan calls the world of a firewall, and the world that appears to us is, is there's we're isolated necessarily. I'm not you, you're not me, but we're isolated. Yeah, uh, uh, and that's part of the story as well. How do we overcome? And that's 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 what. Uh, it infuses Buber's understanding of the Ayat world. If you read, well, if it was a class, I would show you how he, he's saying that. When he talks about this, about the Ayat world, isolated. He's necessary, but isolated, right? It's, yes, it's indeed. Doing yes. constantly. Yeah. But we, I think what I took from reading the book recently, it's very hopeful and kind of um, daring in a way to say, no, we have this capacity. We have this capacity to actually have uh, to be in real relation, um, we probably retreat from it quite a lot because it's easier, it's safer, as you said, we retreat into our shell. And it hurts often. The mis that's a term he coins, mismeaning, forgetting. Mm -hmm. And that's what he learned about is from his mother. You know, mm -hmm. He reached out to her, mm -hmm. and little boy, Ma, where are you going? <laughs> Never turned around to say goodbye. Many years later, he, when he introduced her to his his children, he couldn't look at her in the eyes. He couldn't. Hmm. He felt betrayed. And, uh, yeah, but it's um, it's and just, yeah, in that kind of mismeeting, and it we often have rebuffed and hurt. But without that risk, you very well put it. There's a risk in relationships. You go out of your shell, and then yeah, yeah, you well, reach out. Paul, I want to say, I sort of, I wrote you this email, sort of, you know, we were sort of connected through our friend Amir at Stanford, who I'm really close to, and then my uh, advisor, Jeffrey Hartman, and Rene, they invited you to Yale a long time to give the talks that became that book, German Jews, A Dual Identity. So I actually, for me, it's really uh, moving and wonderful to be to be on Zoom with you. Uh, it's really a nice experience. And, and then I, I just want to also share this with our listeners. I think I read as much as I could. I read, of course, Martin Buber, Life of Faith and Descent, your biography. I read German Jews, A Dual Identity, which is a short book for our readers. So you people can read that actually pretty quickly, right? And then you've also edited Dialogue as a transdisciplinary concept, how this could be used. So I, I just want to thank you for opening up an intellectual space that somehow I wasn't quite tuned into as much. I mean, I also listened to a lecture you gave on Heidegger and Buber, which we could have an entire other conversation on, which is just fascinating how Buber managed to respond to Heidegger, who kind of didn't listen to him in a certain way. But I just want to thank you for this, um, this opening up this, this entire, this man's work to the world today. It's really, it's so critical, I think. And I, I do think, I think I and thou should be retranslated with all due respect to Walter Kaufman and, <laughs> and the Scott. <laughs> well, well, I want to thank you. I very much enjoyed meeting you and uh, meeting you in the dialogical sense. In the dialogical well. sense, exactly. So I, I hope we can continue this conversation. Uber probably would have said and a real life meeting is also important, right? Indeed, indeed. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. So again, I want to thank uh, Professor Paul Mendes Flor. So Paul, it's been a real, a real pleasure and a joy. And I will let you know when we post this episode, which I think will attract a lot of attention in a time when dialogue is urgently needed.